The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. In 40 years, I've played hundreds of characters, but there's one that touches my heart that I love to portray. His name is Dennehy Burfoot. He's a halfling, or also known as a hobbit, and he's been in so much trouble. Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, episode 12. I am your host, Becky Saltzman. And in this episode, we are going to explore a world of fantasy and warfare and dragons and dwarves and gnomes. And I'll start with a little history, which takes us back to 1913, when H.G. Wells developed Little Wars. And Little Wars was a set of rules for playing with toy soldiers. Okay, what's that about? The full title was Little Wars, a game for boys from 12 years of age to 150, and for the more intelligent sort of girl who likes boys' games and books. In 1964, the Midwest Military Simulation Association started in Minneapolis, and it was a group of amateur historians, miniature modelers, and gamers. They used an 1880 military strategy book to start to establish some rules for military simulation. Three years later, in 1967, Gary Gyax and some other guys founded the International Federation of Wargaming to provide a venue for wargame fans to exchange ideas and amateur game designs. Then things got a bit fancier, and in 1971, Gygax and Jeff Perrin published Chainmail, and Chainmail included fantastic mini warfare with wizards and heroes, and of course, my favorite, dragons. In 1974, Gygax and another guy named Aronson formed a partnership called Tactical Studies Rules, and with some other dudes, all dudes, they're mostly guys, and still, to a large extent, they still are, they produced the first Dungeons and Dragons game, aka D&D. D&D was influenced by world mythology, history, pulp fiction, and contemporary novels. It was also influenced by J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Actually, it was so heavily influenced by Tolkien's War of the Rings that Tolkien Enterprises threatened copyright action. And at that point, hobbits became halflings and Balrog became Balor. In 1977, our wonderful guest on today's episode, Daniel Carter, played Dungeons and Dragons for the first time. A friend brought in this new game that he got for Christmas, and it was puzzling because at that time, 1977, the concept of a role-playing game was totally new. He thought, oh, 
You mean you get to be in the story and you get to decide what the characters do? This was unique in the world of Monopoly and Clue. Daniel is one of a very special group of Dungeons and Dragons players who have been playing the game consistently for 40 years. He's also a graphic designer, woodworker, dwarf, elf, gnome, warrior, wizard, and rogue. His love for science fiction and fantasy started as a wee lad growing up in Richmond, Washington. Richmond was not the most exciting rural place to grow up, so Daniel dove into movies and books to find the adventures that his rural town lacked. And like many D&D aficionados, his best loved books were The Lord of the Rings, and the close second being The Hobbit. He loved movies like Forbidden Planet, and Frankenstein, Dracula, and Robin Hood. They all captivated his mind, and soon he was marching through the woods, whacking trees that were really monsters in disguise, with his deadly sword, which looked to outside observers like a stick. D&D is what landed Dan his job as a military intelligence analyst in the army in the early 1980s. An officer walked in and asked if anyone had ever played war games. Daniel raised his hand and soon found himself teaching war games to officers so that they could work out battle strategies and techniques. There are many applicable lessons in Dungeons and Dragons, as you will learn in this episode. And that's why we delve into this world to see if there are actionable bits that you can apply to your life. And trust me, whether you're wildly interested in fantasy role-playing games, interested in storytelling, interested in improv, or just interested in what you can learn from outside the boundaries of ordinary, this episode promises to deliver. Daniel often jokes that everything he ever really needed to know, he learned in Dungeons and Dragons, like how to puzzle through challenges, how to work with others in cooperation, and most importantly, which end of the sword you point at a dragon. Daniel has one son and one daughter and one wife. Daniel has never stopped playing Dungeons and Dragons, and he probably never will. It's pretty cool because he still plays D&D with the very friend who played with him on that very first day in high school back in 1977. He and his friends often joke about all of them sitting in a retirement home, blankets across their laps, frail hands tossing down dice and shaking their canes at anyone who dares to interrupt. In today's episode, you'll meet Dan. You'll learn a bit about how to play D&D. You'll learn how to apply the lessons from D&D to your own life. I like to describe myself as 90% Jane Goodall, and 10% ape. And that means that I like to explore people and worlds that are outside of my own sphere, just kind of like an anthropologist. But once in a while, I like to become the subject. In this episode, Daniel convinces me that I am ready to become the subject, to start taking on the role of an ape. I'm ready to try my hand at D&D. And here's a little opportunity. I suspect you're going to enjoy this episode, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoy talking with Dan. In addition to the regular show notes, which you should check out at AppliedCuriosityLab.com forward slash blog, you will find in the show notes a question, a question whose secret answer can only be found in this podcast episode. Here's what you do. Go to the show notes, see the question, listen to the podcast, find the answer, go to the show notes and comment on the show notes with the answer and you will be given instructions for the next steps in winning an incredible and fun prize. The details about the prize can be found, of course, in the show notes at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. So join the adventure 
That way, it's kind of a podcast about adventure with an adventure embedded in it. And you're invited to participate. And it's important and fun to take advantage of as many adventures in your life as possible. Because as Daniel says, you got to get as many experience points as possible. That's the only way you can level up in life. And now please enjoy my conversation with Daniel Carter. Daniel, welcome to the show. I am so excited to delve into Dungeons and Dragons with you. Well, thank you. I'm I'm excited to share what has become kind of a big part of my life. It's what I do to play. I have a friend that once said, fun, remember fun? And we were born to play. Well, I remember growing up, I played a lot of games. Not everyone did, but you know, I remember the games I played, Battleship and Life and Monopoly. I didn't really like Parcheesi. I played Sorry, and I love, probably my favorite game was chess. The only game that I role played was when I took on the role of a surgeon in operation, and I realized I wasn't very good. And one time, when I was visiting my cousins in Seattle, and it would have been in the 70s, so not long after Dungeons and Dragons launched in 74, I played Dungeons and Dragons with them, and I loved it. But when I came back home, I really didn't know how to do anything with it. I didn't know how to start it. And then eventually, it just became associated with the boys in my math class that were ideal to partner with on homework. What can you tell me about what is Dungeons and Dragons, and how do you play it? Well, Dungeons and Dragons is what's called a fantasy role-playing game. Now we know what fantasy is. We've seen movies like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and Excalibur and things like that. But a role-playing game is shared storytelling at its simplest. You have a dungeon master who administers and runs the games, and he's in charge of creating the world, and he has to portray every character except yours. Now, you create a character using a set of rules and guidelines, but a lot of the style and portraying that character is your choice. If you imagine playing Monopoly and you throw your dice and roll a 10, well, you're going to go around a certain direction on the table. Whereas in Dungeons and Dragons, you could go that direction, this direction, any direction you want. You are in control of your character, except your successes and failures at the things you attempt are based on those statistics and scores. What do you mean statistics and scores? Well, you have scores like your strength. That's physical brute strength. Dexterity, it's how lithe you are and how fast you can move. Wisdom, intelligence, how smart you are, how wise you are. Those all are used to create your abilities. But where do they come from? Well, you sit down and you roll dice. Your scores are from three to 18. You use three six-sided dice, which are the traditional dice most people know. But there's a whole set of polythedral dice that are anything from a four-sided, a six-sided, to eight, 12, 10, 20. And that helps create the randomness of the game and makes your successes or failures obvious. So... You create these scores. There is a certain amount of freedom in how you place them. When you choose your character, you play a class, a race, and choose your skills. What's an example of a race? Races are like dwarves, elves, gnomes, humans. Classes, that's your job, basically. And they're like warrior, rogue, wizard, thief, assassin. There's so many to choose from. 
And then you choose a background, which is sort of your job that you had before you decided to pick up that sword and head out. So you use all these things to flavor your character. And then in the game, you're the actor. You talk for them, you make decisions, and it's a wide open world. And that is kind of strange to some people that are used to playing Monopoly chess board games, traditional games. And so I think it's easy to, as you said, oh, you know, that's the guys in the math club that did that. (laughs) And you know what? We're nerds and we're proud of it. But I think there's a freedom in this sort of game that lets you express those things. And it's, it's just something I've done a lot and I love it. And we try to play every week. Okay, so when you play, does it look like a board game, a video game, or a game that is made up of things that you've written down on paper with books and little figurines? If I come to watch one of your games, what does it look like to me? Well, we sit around a big table. The table is covered in one-inch squares, and that represents five feet of space. Yes, we put our miniatures down that represent our characters. The dungeon master puts down everybody else, the monsters that we see, things like that. And yes, there's a lot of dice on the table and papers on the table and books that are guides to you know your actions. There's a lot of uh, tension and laughing and... People get into the role play, they talk like their characters at times, and sometimes you just talk to the other players and go, gosh, how are we going to solve this problem? What has a dungeon master done? I know this is probably a big question, but in the hours, days, weeks, I don't know, maybe months leading up to a particular game, you do it every week, so I'm sure that there's some iterative process, but what does a dungeon master do to prepare and then What do y'all do to prepare when you're not in the role of the dungeon master? Well, the dungeon master is in charge of literally creating the world that you're going to adventure in. And that can be a lot of work. Now, there's prepackaged campaign settings, but I've always designed my own. And I find that just the most creative process possible. You come up with sort of themes and bad guys in the world and puzzles in dungeons. And yes, there's a lot of time spent in the books and making notes. So each game session, since the dungeon master is not necessarily in charge of what happens, that can really steer the game. So you have to be able to go back, make some more notes, adjust it a little bit. So he's kind of the director, producer, of the game, administers it. It's a responsibility in a way because you're in charge of everybody else at that table having fun. Do you remember the first time you ever played? I do, I do. It was 1977. It was right after Christmas and one of my best friends came to school and said, look at this. And it was a blue box with a dragon on the front. And as we poured through the books, you know, there's, you know, these little stapled uh, paper books, fairly simplistic, and the dice. I mean, all of this was just amazing. And we poured over these books and looked at the rules. And it was a hard concept to get a hold of because we were used to traditional games. But I think those first games 
were like an explosion in your mind going, I get to do this. And, you know, science fiction and fantasy has always been a genre that I've loved. Movies like Forbidden Planet and Godzilla and books, of course, like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit were just, they fueled my imagination and I loved it. And to be able to sit down with your friends and play a game that let you let off that steam and go on an adventure was was just amazing to me. Tell me uh, the history. I know you've been playing with the same group of people for a long period of time, but when did it start and how has that worked? Are they all guys? You know, I've played with both. I've played with men and women, boys and girls. Mostly those first games were a bunch of us guys. Some of us were in the computer club and, you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We We played in the physics lab. So it was sort of a men's club only at that time. But gosh, some of my favorite players that I've ever played with were women. There was a lady named Elizabeth that I played with when I lived down in Fresno, California. And she was an artist. And she would draw pictures of the adventure we were on and take notes and illustrations in it. That was just amazing. And I've played with other women, and they get into it just as much as men. And it's just as fun. I started playing, like I said, in 1977. So I've played 40 years now. And I think in all that time, I was three months without a game. And that was when I was in basic training in the Army. And as soon as I was stationed, I put a poster up on the rec room board, and I found a group. And I was surprised. I literally had to take that down and start turning people away. Usually when you play, you have, you know, four to six, seven people. If it gets a lot more than that, it's it's just too crowded. It's too much like herding cats. Everybody wants to be heard. And that makes sense. So you meet, but you meet every week. So is it the same group of people every week? Or you know, like, well, let's say I wanted to join. We're pretty comfortable with the group that we have. I play with three other guys. And one of them, my friend, best friend Floyd is the guy that brought that box in. I was a freshman and he was a sophomore. So you've been playing with Floyd for? Well, not constantly because, you know, I did live in California and I did some, moved around a little bit. But yes, he was like at that original game and now I play with him. The other guys I play with, and I'm going to shout them out, is Mark, who I met through those other guys, and Bill, who's a longtime friend too. But... Anybody, gosh, you could meet people playing this. We're hidden around. All right. So if you're talking to someone who listens to this or has read about D&D and they want to start a game, obviously you go Google and see where games are played. But what do you have to do? Do you have to be talked through creating a character? What are the specific things that one has to do to start in a game? Yeah, definitely you have to work your way through creating a character and understanding the process of the game really helps too. But if you want to get started playing this game, you know, there's groups that meet in gaming stores all over the area. Here locally, Guardian Games is is a good location. That It's a huge store full of tables and people play. But yeah, if you had a group or you were interested in finding a group, it's not always the easiest thing that we don't leave signs out and things like that. But definitely finding a good dungeon master who will step you through 
the process of creating your character, get you familiar with the process. What it, are the okay? So creating a character and familiar with the process. If you were to pick three takeaways for people to understand what it means to start creating your character and three bullet points about the process, what would those be? I think first, when you're creating a character, you find a little piece of yourself that matches those characters. It doesn't have to be a complete match. You may not find yourself, you know, some aggressive fighter, but you know how that would feel. Creating a character is very personal. If you get one that clicks, it's awesome. So starting out, you're going to roll your scores. You're going to look at the possibilities. Because even if you pick like a warrior, you have different styles that you can pick as far as fighting, your background. Are you a crusader? Are you a mercenary? I mean, you really get to flavor this to what you'd like to play. And it's just like creating your own character in a play. How long are you that character? Just for that one night of playing? No, that one it, well, game? it varies. We play years. Wait, you're the same character for years. Is the game one continuous game for years? You are playing out the life of this character. That's our style of play. And it can be a year or two that we walk this character through the world. I've played games that were one-offs, one night, here's a quick adventure. And those are fun too, but to be able to develop that character and actually have a history with the people you're playing, it's, it's so much fun and it makes the game very satisfying. Because you understand how those players play their character so you can have this kind of level of complexity that you wouldn't have if you were playing with new people every week and that also makes the dungeon master's job, I imagine, a little harder. Or in some ways easier, maybe they, they kind of anticipate that Daniel always plays his characters this way. I don't know. Well, Daniel likes to be a little random in the way he plays. Well, then you would but, know that. You would know that exactly. you're... Exactly. <laughs> and the familiarity of the friends at the table is nice. We know how people are going to respond. And as a dungeon master, I would feed those things because I know... This guy likes combat, and this guy likes intrigue or mysteries. And, and so you feed those desires. And like I said, it's your responsibility to make sure these people have fun. So if game after game after game is nothing but combat, this guy over here is happy, but this guy is missing something. And so you mix it up. And what about the strategy? You said you should understand the, the basic strategy or structure of the game. What would you need to understand, ideally? Well, you need to, one, you need to know how the game functions. You need to know how the world reacts. So being familiar with the medieval fantasy genre is is good, but it's stuff you can learn. You can go as deep as you want. With, Where would you go to learn? I want to learn a little bit about medieval fantasy. There's a, one documentary, one book, one I'm going to start with. What would you recommend? Ooh, well, movies are always a good thing. The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, as I mentioned before, Always good books. Gosh, I get I You're buying know. one book for someone who has, you're buying a book for me as a present, hypothetically. You could make it a reality. What would that book be? I would make you read The Hobbit. Okay. You know, The Lord of the Rings is, you know, a set of three books. It's bigger. The Hobbit is fun. It's more simplistic, but it's going to give you 
the idea of, you know, fighters and magic and adventure. And that was one that hit me as a child really heavily. The closest I would come is my uh, Smeagol impression. My precious. <laughs> so that is the closest I come to fantasy world. But I, but I did enjoy those movies. Well, right. that's, that's a place to start from, and it definitely works. All right. So now I've seen, I kind of have read the book. I understand what an elf is. I understand a couple of basic uh, fundamental aspects of fantasy. I have been thinking about my character, and I found a group. And I show up for the first time at a gaming store with four people and a dungeon master or three other people and a dungeon master. I'm creating my character in conjunction with them or do I do it myself outside of that group the first time? Well, it really is a combination of both because if you're creating characters with another group, you want your skills to balance with them. If everybody's a wizard Who's going to stand up there and swing a sword at the dragon? If everybody's a rogue, they're sneaking around and, you know, nobody's filling these other roles. So it does help to balance that with the players. So you tend to make or at least have conversations about what characters you want to play. And that does steer your choices because you want a good balance, especially if you're playing long-term, you want a good balance party. Oh, well, that makes sense. It seems like these role-playing games like D&D, somewhat go back to games like chess, strategy games, war on a board. With chess, I totally understand how one is measured. You know, you kill the king, you stalemate, checkmate, whatever. Can you be a good D&D player, and how is success measured? Well, success is not measured in I won. It's measured in I kept living. Could you, if you're playing a a year-long game, could you die in the first year? Um, You can. Now there are methods to come back from the dead because nobody wants to destroy your characters and, you know, it's over. There you go. Or you create a new character. Or if your character is destroyed, you have to take the hint that you might not be the one that they want to play with. Well, I'm not sure it's that blatant. I think maybe (laughs) it's your choices that lead you to being killed. Uh, You didn't run away when you really should have run away. Things like that. I mean, everything that the dungeon master puts in front of you is not a necessarily a situation you can succeed at. So you might have to think of other strategies. Don't just pull out your sword and attack. But the game is going to be measured in your advancement. You get better at your skills. You go up levels. You start out fairly simple. Your skills are basic. But as you go up levels, and that's, that's done by the awarding of experience points, So say you successfully destroyed this monster or got past this trap or whatever, you get a certain amount of points. And after you get enough points, you go up a level. Your skills increase. You're able to pick other attributes. Can you use new weapons that you weren't able to use at a different level? Or is it mostly the ability to do certain things with those weapons? Like you're at, I don't know, level five, and then you kill another monster and you move up to another level. Well, it's it's really both, depending upon the class, what their skills are based on. Sometimes you get new weapons, but sometimes you find weapons in treasure piles, uh, and it's a better weapon. It's more magical. It's you know has extra attributes, things like that. Or you find a suit of armor or a magic wand that's better. So yeah, your kit gets stronger. 
your character gets new attributes. So it's a development of your character. And as people that play video games that where you pick up treasure, you get better skills, things like that, you advance and your character gets more options. And it's fun watching that character develop, just like movies. Going back to Lord of the Rings again, you watch this little innocent hobbit go from baking lunch and stuff to becoming a very skilled adventurer. And it's it's that methodology that makes Dungeons & Dragons fun because you get to create that character and watch it grow. Tell me about a time that a game went in a way that you didn't expect. As a dungeon master, you have to be ready for that. I have created, you know, like, oh, this big, mysterious, evil-looking castle. And the players walk up to it. You've spent hours creating this, drawing the maps, populating it with monsters and traps. And they go, oh, we're going to go that way. And they wander away to go do their own thing. And that happens. So... You can either get upset, steer them, but no, you have to go here. You have, this is the adventure. Or you just go, okay, well, let's see what adventure is over there. And you go along with them on that journey. Is that um, what a good dungeon master would do? Is just kind of move around with whatever they decide versus being bossy and steering them? Now, I've played with both kinds. And I've had games where I was both kinds. And to steer someone around takes away their freedom to portray their character. It becomes more you're playing out my story, and that's not fun for anybody. So yeah, you have to be able to react. And just like playing your characters is a form of acting, so is dungeon mastering. What's the strangest place you've ever played? You mean physical place? Yeah. Uh, when we were in high school, my friend Floyd, who I still play with, we decided to go up to a set of caves by Mount Adams and play inside the caves. So we were packing up, getting some food, some books, and getting our stuff. And my mom, it was like 10 o'clock at night. We'd gotten off work. And my mom said, what are you doing? It's the middle of the night. And my answer was, mom, we're going to be in a cave. It doesn't matter what time it is. So yeah, we went up there, found a good flat rock, sat down, played Dungeons and Dragons in a cave. But I've actually done that a few different times. And some of our favorite games, we try to go camping every year, sit up in the woods with all the stars and things out and play in the woods. And I've done that with several different groups. And that's a lot of fun. What happens when you're with someone that is not playing well? What does not playing well look like? Hmm. Can you not play well? Can that? Can you oh, say, I don't really like playing with that of person. Course. They're not a and, good player. And when you play weekly like we do, sometimes you come to the table and you've had a bad day. And there are bad games and it happens. What's a bad game? What's an example of an argument or a bad game? Oh my gosh. Sometimes we'll sit down and we'll argue just the most minutia of rules and it just keeps going, and yeah, it gets frustrating, and that happens. And you just, I mean, it's like anything you do with your friends. Some days are good days, some days are bad days. I've been Dungeon Master and have laid out the puzzles and things, and the party just can't solve it. 
in my mind, it's easy. I built it. I drew it up. But in their mind, it's so beyond them. And sometimes that happens. And you just, you move on. Sometimes you throw your hands up in the air, but you always come back. Give me an example of a puzzle. So you walk into a room. There are squares on the floor of random colors. There's a door on the other side of the room. Without a doubt, that's a trap somewhere. So you might have to decide from the symbols on the walls. You see a bright sun, a dark moon. What colors are you going to step on? I mean, things like that. Or it can be, you know, there's four keys on the wall. You don't know which key opens that door. And you may die if you grab the wrong key and stick it in that lock. So you're going to look for clues. You're going to see which one might be scratched up because it's been used. You might look for the tracks on the floor and see where people walked, things like that. Then there's pure riddles. Gosh, what's a classic Hobbit riddle? You did your Sumigal impersonation, so this fits. There's a box without key or hinges or lid. Inside golden treasure is hid. Well, the same thing shows up in D&D, and there's a lot of reference materials. Okay, so does it help to have been a, a really avid fantasy reader? Are people at an advantage if they know kind of these little... Definitely. Because yeah. there's certain methodologies in fantasy that would help, but it's not required. You can you can flow into it and just get the hang of it. And I think it helps to stir your imagination and you have a certain list of not realities, but you know what I mean? As far as with the fantasy, you kind of know what to expect. Would D&D be important in terms of translating to other skills? I mean, military strategy, general strategy, critical thinking. Is it important or is it just fun? No, no. It's it's important because it teaches you cooperation with others. It teaches you how to, I don't want to say exploit, but how to take advantage of people's skills just, you know, general puzzle solving translates to your life. It's, if you're, you know, when we go out there in the world, we're playing a character. It's ourselves, granted, but how you react with people, how you express your interests and puzzle solve. You may, as a podcaster, have to sit down with somebody that you're just not interested in. Well, guess what? You have to pretend like you're interested. You have to portray your character. And I think Dungeons and Dragons or any of these role-playing games, there's a lot of different genres. I mean, I've played anything from vampire-based role-playing games to science fiction to spy modern-day stuff. And I think it does fuel that puzzle-solving or that critical thinking the logical thinking. So I think it does help. It makes sense that it would. And I remember reading about something, it probably was like maybe in the 80s or I don't know, maybe 90s, when some kid, 16-year-old college student, went missing. And they went in and they found these mysterious books on his shelf. They were D&D books. And they decided that Dungeons and Dragons was associated with devil worship and the occult. I think they even ended up having to call Joyce Brothers in to say, no, this has nothing to do with the occult. 
Do you remember that? Oh, the demon worship 80s. Oh, yeah, I remember that, definitely. And there was a movie that portrayed that called Mazes and Monsters, and one of the players gets way too into the game. And, yeah, he gets lost in some caverns, and, you know, it's all tragic. And the religious groups jumped on that, saying, oh, it leads to belief in the occult and magic and demon worship. And I don't know a single player, and I've met hundreds and hundreds, that that affected, you know, that that led to an interest in the occult or practice in evil religious rites. Uh, It just, it was reactionary and ridiculous. Do you know anyone who lives a little bit more in their fantasy world, you know, the role of a cleric or the role of a wizard, and you think, okay, you know what, click out of that. You're playing just in regular, or does that not I imagine that could oh, happen, no, like no, a role, of course. an acting role, But right? that can happen with anything. Right. You know, people that watch sports are fanatics. Of course, Dungeons & Dragons or role-playing games, you find fanatics. People that dress in costume, you know, in their general lives. Well, you know, it's fine. It's basically harmless. But it's like anything if it gets too important to you. And I have met these people. I have played with these people that... If something went wrong with their character, they were upset for days. But hopefully you find a group that's not like that. I mean, my friends are not obsessed. We play a lot. We think about it. It's it's our hobby. I could just as well be in a bowling club or, or into uh, fantasy football. It's just, it's what we do. It's what we enjoy. So it's a good time to get together with our friends. But yeah, I've seen some people go over the top and it can do that. Are there consistent ways that mean that it's the end of the game? So you know, okay, the game ends here. I can get into the mindset that I lost in a bowling. You know, I got all gutters. I'm done. I've rolled 10 frames or the football game is over because of the time. How does the game end so that you know this is the end of the game and it's time to stop fantasizing? You mean on a the game logistical, like the, just um, logistical. Well, the campaign tends to have a ultimate bad guy, or this is how we're going to save the world. It's heroic fantasy, so you are out there to save the world, save the princess, kill the dragon, or whatever. There tends to be ends of chapters. Okay, this goal was met, but when you get to that final goal, you slay the evil dark lord or, you know, something like that, then then you kind of know the game is over. Now, on a daily basis, it's time-based. I mean, we play until a certain amount of time in the evening, and sometimes we'll get to the end of the fight, and okay, we'll pick this up next week. But there are definitely goals, uh, not so much from traditional games or like traditional games where, oh, you get to the end, you win. We really do play to keep playing. What constitutes a campaign? Well, a campaign is the encompassing term of that game and the history and your journey. A campaign is consistent of a world or worlds. There could be more than one. And that's the story that the Dungeon Master lays out. I tend to always have my world be the same, at least in name. My world is called Dolomir. When you're the dungeon master, yes. is that what you mean? So when your your world becomes the world that they play in when you're the dungeon master. Yes. And yours is called what? Dolomir. Dolomir. What does that mean? 
it's just a name that I made up one time. It uh, sounds good. In my first campaigns, I it's the world that I do some writing. It's the world that I write about. And I just use it. And each time I start a new version for, you know, when, when it's my turn to Dungeon Master, it's the next age. It's Does like, your Dolomir have a flavor that would be recognizable to people who have played with you? It's pretty traditional fantasy, although I've played where the zombie apocalypse hit the world. I've played where dragons have flooded in and they're taking control. I've played where this continent was the evil people and the good people were over here. But it's fairly traditional fantasy style. How do you decide who becomes, in your group of people that you've played with for a number of years, how do you decide who becomes the dragon master and how often dragon, sorry, dungeon master, and how often does that change? Well, with my group of uh, the four of us, we pretty much have two people that will dungeon master, my friend Floyd and myself. Floyd is, like I said, the guy that I started playing with. It's just because we enjoy it and the other two guys that play, Bill has Dungeon Master for us, and he is good, uh, but he tends to just like to play. And same thing with Mark. I, I don't think Mark has ever Dungeon Master, not for us anyway. Is it a lot of work? Because that seems like it would be a lot of work to create all that stuff for it people is. to play with. It is. You have to be dedicated enough to put in the time. How much time? Typically, I would say for a game session, prep time is a couple hours. But that is on top of creating the world. Yes. So in addition to, you have your general world because you've been doing it. Do you just play on top of that world or do you ever trash that world and start completely? And maybe the world isn't the right right word for it, but do you ever trash that and start over? I, I do. Some cataclysmic event will happen in the world. The maps will change a little bit. Political borders change. And... So creating that, I just ended my game. They killed the evil dragon, saved the world, and you know that was the end of the game. And now we're playing in Floyd's game. I've already started my next game. Oh, you've already started? Oh yeah, I've started designing it and, and things like that. And you know, so I'll spend probably the next year, year and a half working on it. And just, you know, when I get inspired, write a little thing, draw a map, draw a picture, draw a dungeon, work up some theories. And it's a lot of work as a dungeon master to create these things. All right. So now a year later, you're done with Floyd's mm -hmm. campaign, I guess. Is it a campaign? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're done with Floyd's campaign. And now we're going to do Daniel's campaign. Do you then lay out a bunch of stuff on the table? Do you have to read a bunch of things? Do you send emails to people to say, okay, get this? How, does, how do you introduce that to the, the players? Well, it usually starts by I'll create the setting and create the major themes. They'll start talking about the characters that they're interested in trying out, playing. We tend to try different things. You know, you you'd it's not one type of character that you play over and over and over again in different campaigns. So we'll start talking about that. And I'll use those things to flavor the setting, the story. Um, one game that we played, they all decided they were going to play gnomes. So we made them brothers that were separated at birth. So one grew up here, one grew up there. And it was these three little guys going off to save the world. And 
there's things like that. I didn't expect that when I was first designing the storyline, but it really helped flavor it. And it was, it was a very successful campaign. We had a lot of fun playing it. It sounds very improv-y. Well, you have to. I mean, it totally is because you don't know from session to session what you're going to be faced with. There might be common themes, oh, we're, we're crossing the desert to go here, but you don't know what is going to happen along the way, what people you might meet. Um, but there are rules. So what's the role of rules? How important are rules? Well, the rules kind of are going to dictate that what you can do. You can't suddenly say, oh, I'm going to transform my character into Abraham Lincoln and fly across the lake. You just can't do that. Why can't you? Well, one, you don't have those abilities. Well, you, you know, you might. Uh, you don't, one, know who Abraham Lincoln is. And two, it helps keep, ah, I dare say it, a certain reality to what you're doing. And Do the rules come from someplace? Or are they just kind of known? Well, no, no, no. There's books. Dungeons and Dragons was created by two gentlemen, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. And a host of other people had their hands in it. But there is rule books. There's a player's guide, which defines, you know, how to create your character. And what that's agreed do. upon definitive player's guide. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, I mean, it's that's the book. Now, there is a lot of room, especially in the new version, to homebrew it, to add flavor, to stylize it to what you want to play. So if you want to play a world that's run by the dragons, you can do that. And you can add these rules or these types of things. But it all comes back to those basic sets of rules so that you know what game you're playing. Do you have to know the rules when you start? Are there key rules that you should know? I mean, it seems like with books and books and books and versions, I don't know how many editions they've had, but that would be a lot. It's kind of daunting. It's kind of intimidating to think that you would be able to play. It, it can be, without a doubt, because, okay, Dungeons & Dragons is in version five right now, fifth edition. It's gone through other distinct editions. We played for many years in 3.5, which was, they released version three. There was some things that needed to be fixed. So they released 3.5. Now that, I think I have about 45 books for that version. Does the owner of Dungeon, is it Wizards of the Coast? Um, yes. Now they're partially owned by Hasbro. Actually, they're Hasbro. a division of Hasbro now. So does Hasbro have control over those all those books that you have purchased? Or are there independent fantasy writers that glom on to Dungeons & Dragons and write on their own? Both, actually. There are aftermarket writers that sort of write around the rules of Dungeons & Dragons. They don't necessarily create specific ones. So of your 34 books, are they universally sanctioned books? or Most of them, yeah. yes, yes. Is there controversy about the different editions? And like, like when the iPhone launches and everyone hates this new update. Oh, yes. Okay, so what's the most controversial of all the launches with Dungeons & Dragons? Version 4. And what was wrong with that? Or what was controversial about well, that? Well... We don't we don't speak about that. No, <laughs> but it, they tried to appeal to the video game type of mentality, the button mashing, the oh, it's they tried to make it very simple rather than as freeing as some of the other versions. What did that look like? 
gosh, you know what? To be completely honest, I have never cracked a version four book. You just heard so much that it was not something you would really. Like. You started to hear online, bless their hearts, uh, how stinky it was, and we were happy playing version three point five. I had a lot of money invested in books. You know, at nineteen ninety five a crack when you have forty or more books, you don't really want to change versions because you know you'd have to buy all new books. Now version five, there's only a very few books. Uh, you know, you can get by with three. As a dungeon master, there's a monster manual, the dungeon master's guide, and a player's guide. Do and they build on the previous versions, or does it make the ver- earlier versions obsolete? Like your books for 3.5, can you use those, or is it just completely contradict those versions? When well, the rule five? sets contained in those versions tend to change. The base game itself, no, it's always the same. I mean, it's Dungeons and Dragons. You're playing a character, and that really doesn't change. Now, the skill sets, the scores that you get, things like that, have changed throughout the versions. What is an example of a rule? Each character, let's say movement, uh, is dictated by the race, how tall you are, how fast you are, things like that. Most people can move in their turn, and it and it's broken up in turns. So each character says, I do this uh, for my action. I move 30 feet, and I swing my sword, shoot my bow, cast a spell, whatever. So those are the rules that direct and guide your, your choices. You have scores, like I said, strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, charisma, that all dictate how good you are at these things. You can literally try pretty much anything you want to try, but the dungeon master decides how difficult an action is. So you roll a dice, you add up. Each score that you have has pluses and minuses. So say I was trying to jump this chasm and my dexterity was eight. It's likely you're not going to make it. If my dexterity is 18, you not only can, if you roll a success... It might look really good if you roll really high. And so it it flavors that. So the rules are there to sort of corral you into your choices, but the freedom to say, oh, I'm not going to jump over there. I'm going to climb down, climb across, climb up the other side. What is something that you know that applies to your everyday life that you wouldn't know if you had not played this game? Gosh, the realization. It's hard to because I can't step out of my mind and look backwards. But I think the realization that everybody has a character and that's important. To be able to watch people react to situations and know that that's not a choice that they're making this actual moment, but everything in their life built up to that that moment, even if it's trivial. So everybody has a character, like I said, and not every situation has an obvious answer. So you got to think about it. Those are two great takeaways. You think about a deeper philosophical concept of free will. And my mind, this is where my mind was going when you were talking about the role-playing fantasy game where you control your character and yet there are rules that dictate certain things that you can't control. And it's very interesting when you think about how much free will we have to do things versus how much is 
our history or how much is preset in rules that were laid down by our DNA or whatever. It's an interesting analogy. Right. And it, it really is portraying that life. But you're not going to portray it way out of your own life. Each character, you're going to find a little piece of yourself. You're going to fill it in. You're going to try things. And that's the fun part. I don't get to be a wizard in real life and cast spells and blow up things. But in my mind and on Saturday nights, I get to try. Now, that kind of sounds appealing. You, you've, you've slowly started converting my mind to the idea that I might have to show up with and start developing a character. If you look back on all the little pieces and you know, all the little figurines and whatever, are there certain things that you think, I wish I would have kept this book or this figurine or this, are there collectibles with, with this game? Uh, not so much because I think the people that play, they, they have the stuff that they, I have every book that I ever bought except for one set. And I gave that to a boy who was interested in playing. And I said, here, take this. Your life will never be the same. And this, this was, I was probably in my 20s in the army at that time. So I have every version, every set in boxes. You know, my wife thinks I'm crazy. I have hundreds and hundreds. She doesn't play? No, no. She's never tried. It has, holds no interest for her. But I was gifted with a very imaginative daughter who came to me a little while ago and said, Dad, can I use your books? I want to learn how to play. And of course, you know, proud dad, my heart my heart soared. And of course, if you need any information, you let me know. And she actually plays online with friends. The internet is a wonderful thing for that. And she plays with people, you know, across the country. And it's been fun watching her do it. And, and just the other day, she was, she's a gifted artist. She really is. And we bought her a drawing tablet, you know, so she can draw right into the computer. And she was working on some artwork. I said, what are you looking at? Or what are you working on? Excuse me. And she's, well, I'm drawing some maps. I said, you're drawing maps? Yeah, I think I want to try to dungeon master. And I said, I am here for you. I said, I'll stay out of it, let you create. But if you have any questions, you ask. So You're fist pumping in the background. Oh, yeah, in the background. Of course I am. You know, you spike the football. Yes. I did it. I did it. Does the... Now, you know, you think about the first role-playing game being Dungeons and Dragons, and now it's kind of this whole first-person role-playing thing, whether it's online video games or VR. This seems so obvious, but it also makes me wonder, was there ever a fear or is there a fear that this whole thing could go away because the whole role-playing thing just kind of goes electronic? No, I don't think so. I, I think the appeal of sitting around a table with your friends, looking at their reactions and their faces is very appealing. I mean, we are social creatures. So I don't think, you know, the online stuff is going to just overpower it. And I don't think role-playing is ever going to go away. It's too expressive. It gives us the freedom to choose. Video games, you know, are a little more open than, say, board games. But you're still limited to the code that somebody wrote, even if you have quite a few choices. But when you step into the world of, as I mentioned before, theater of the mind, it is wide open. And I think being able to express those uh, actions will never be replaced. 
You talked a little bit earlier about men and women when you started and your daughter starting to play. Why do you think that this game has always appealed, and games like it, frankly, more to men than women? Why would it appeal just to men and women? Men tend to get more excited about the combat and the heroic, I'm a knight, that kind of stuff. But when you break it down, the, the women that I've played with were just as passionate. But I think it, it might be a, a guy's genre and that sort of game. But it's... That's, the saving complex may be more prevalent in men than women or more common than men. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's That hasn't been my experience. But yes, my, more men tend to play. It just, it just, I think it might be a social setting or the stigma or the, well, I'm, I can't be a nerd. I have to be, you know, this, this demure little woman. And, but boy, those times are changing. What would you want people to know about D&D? Someone's listening to this podcast and they are either wildly interested in it, moderately interested, or just kind of like me, relentlessly curious about a whole bunch of things. What would you want them to know? Well, I think if you're if you have an interest in expressing yourself, acting even if you're shy, it's a great place to go. It's a fun game. It's challenging. It can be exciting, it can be scary. Just being able to sit down with friends and play let's pretend. It is so pure. It's storytelling. You know, back when we were cavemen, storytelling, and past that, storytelling was how we spread our history. So now to get the chance to build a story with your friends, even if it's fantasy, pure fantasy, it's a blast. Well, I'm going to commit. I I will say in the next three months, I am going to find a way to start to play and try. I'm going to do it. Okay. I'm going to help. Okay. All right, so, oh, wait, what are you giving me? I'm giving you a set of your very own dice. Oh, my God. Green, purple, gold. Yep. Polyhedral seven die set. Thank you so much. Okay. My pleasure. And, and, you know, I've just injected you with the gaming poison, I guess. Oopsie, I just hit the microphone. Sorry about that. But, okay, so I'm going to, when we turn this off, I'm going to get some advice about where to start. And then I'll include that in the show notes. I'll include everything we talked about that people might want to refer to in the show notes. And then I might even do a follow-up about what happened afterwards. Before we sign off, though. I have something called Quick Curious Questions, QCQs, Mm -hmm. which I love to kind of get insights and also a reason for people to kind of go back to the show notes. So my first question for you is, what is, and this is not related to D&D, by the way, what is your favorite under $100 purchase that you've made in the last six months? Could be a year. I have favorite $100 purchase. Under $100. Under $100. I'm a big woodworker. It's probably going to be... A saw that I just bought, cordless, handheld saw. Those kind of things are big for me. All right. Well, we're going to get into that because I want to talk a bit about where people can find you in a minute and the podcast that you're launching. So we'll touch on that in a second. What can you tell me today that you know to be true about D&D that other players would refute as either blasphemy or not right or incorrect dogma? Oh my goodness, that's a tough one. 
Well, I think that uh, I would have to say that Dungeons and Dragons may not be my life, and it is for some people, but it is an expression of that. And it is, gosh, I'm not sure what, I think anybody that played, that played a lot is going to go along with that. So I'm not sure I have any wisdom that people don't agree with for that. What about an outside of that? What is one thing that you believe that most people think is crazy? I often tell people that no one can insult them unless you give them permission. No one can hurt your feelings unless you value their opinions. So go through life like that. If you're being bullied, which, you know, I was a short little fat nerd in high school, in grade school. So I got bullied a lot. And you learn that that's not important. Don't give them that power. That's good advice. And and something that a lot of people would think is crazy because you could find a time when maybe that wouldn't apply or whatever. So I think that's great advice. Where can people find you? I want to know that and also want for you to have a few minutes to talk about your new venture. Okay, well, I am kicking off a new podcast on woodworking called It's Wood. You can find it at itswood.com. I'm going to be exploring the world of woodworking through the artists, craftsmen, manufacturers, industry people, any place with a great story. Now, I've done woodworking tool testing and other podcasts for 21 years now. Um, I learned woodworking when I was a little kid, and I know there are some amazing stories out there. So it's going to be launching, I'm hoping, January 5th, and then released every Friday after that. So, you know, if you're listening to this and you are a woodworker with an interesting story, please get a hold of me. That's great because even if you're relentlessly curious about a whole bunch of topics, the world of woodworking, which I know a little bit from you also having grown up with a father who sold sawmills, I think that there's a lot of insights and interesting tidbits that could be fun to explore. And I know that I know that you are the one to to reveal and unveil those things. So You know, and there's a funny tie-in with my gaming compared to woodworking. It's an artistic expression. You know, one is all imaginary. The other one is hands-on creating things. And it just, it feeds off of the same impulses in my brain. Fantastic. Well, I'm very excited for all of that. And I really, really appreciate you sharing. And I love my set of dye. And I cannot wait to come back and tell you and maybe even the listeners what it was like for me to start playing Dungeons and Dragons. Well, I'm certainly here if you have questions or need some help. Thanks so much. My pleasure. In addition to being a Dungeons and Dragons aficionado, Daniel Carter is a graphic designer, woodworker, dwarf, elf, gnome, warrior, wizard, and rogue. He can be reached at itswood.com. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question... Would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the Tribe of the Curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, 
and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to AppliedCuriosityLab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity. Curiosity.